You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of Mystery of the Universe, the Human Being, Image of Creation, collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner, formerly known as Man, Hieroglyph of the Universe. This is Lecture 6. We have seen that we must search for a harmony between the processes taking place in man and the processes that take place in the outer universe. Let us once again recall briefly the point to which our studies led us yesterday. We said that man had to be regarded, to begin with, from four points of view. Firstly, in relation to the forces responsible for his form. Secondly, in relation to all the forces expressing themselves in the circulation of the blood, lymph, etc., in short, the forces of the internal motion, parenthesis, in the fully grown adult, as you know, the formative forces are to a large extent in a state of rest, whereas forces of motion are in a state of continual flow, close parenthesis. Thirdly, we have the organic forces, and fourthly, metabolism as such. To begin with, we must consider all that relates to the formative forces, These are the forces which work outward from within until they reach the outermost periphery, the limits of our circumference. If we formed a silhouette of man, seen as it were from all sides, we should comprehend and encompass the furthest extent of these inner forces which build him up from within outward. Now it should not be difficult to understand that these structuring forces must be connected with other forces, which, like them, are active at our periphery and are to be discovered there. These are the forces active in the senses. The senses of man lie, as you know, upon his external periphery. They are, of course, distributed over it and differentiated, but in order to come into contact with the forces acting in the senses, you must look for them at the periphery. And this justifies us in saying that the formative forces must have a connection with the activity of the senses. We shall perhaps understand this point better if we remember the words that Goethe quotes as uttered by one of the old mystics. Were the eye not sunlike in itself, how could we see the sun? Now it cannot be the light activity surrounding us all the time that is meant when the eye is said to be sunlike or light-like. For this light activity can be perceived by the eye only when the eye is completely formed. It cannot therefore be this that is meant when we are speaking of the building up of the eye through light. We must imagine this light activity as something intrinsically different. We actually arrive at a certain conception of this by following man during the time between death and a new birth. For during this period his experiences consist, in part, 
but of course only in part, in a perception of the gradual transformation of the forces within him from the preceding physical life to the new one. And he perceives how the limb forces are transformed in the time between death and a new birth into the head form. These experiences are no less rich in content than are those experiences we live through in this life when we watch the gradual quickening of the plants in spring and their decay in autumn, etc. All this building up that goes on in man in the time between death and rebirth is a great wealth of events, a wealth of real happenings, which are by no means so easy to grasp as the mere abstract idea of them. All that takes place during this time to effect the transformation of the forces of our limbs into those of the head for the new incarnation is extraordinarily manifold. Man himself partakes in the process. He experiences, for instance, something akin to the building up of the eye, but he does not experience it in the same manner as he did during the long evolutionary period when he passed through the various evolutionary stages preceding our current earth stage, namely those of moon, sun, and Saturn. The forces of the stellar universe then acted upon him in a different way. This stellar universe was also differently formed from the way it is now. It is of great importance to form clear ideas on these matters. If we consider our present perceptions of what is around us, what are they? They are really pictures. Behind these pictures, of course, lies the real world. But the world underlying these pictures is what actually built up man before he had evolved sufficiently to be able to perceive them. Today we perceive with our eyes images of the surrounding world. Behind these lies what has built up our eyes. So we can say that if the forces underlying our image of the sun had not constructed the eye, the eye could not perceive this image of the sun. Thus, you see, we have to somewhat modify what Goethe says. For while the perception of light nowadays produces images, what first built up the sense organs at our periphery were not images, but realities. So that when we look around us in this world, what we perceive are really the forces that have built us up, our own formative forces. They have now drawn into us that which acted from without up to the earth period of evolution now works from within. We will retain this thought for our succeeding studies and will now bring together the first and fourth of these forces, number one, structuring forces, two, forces of inner movement, three, organic forces, four, assimilative or metabolic forces. Let us, for the moment, consider the last named. The process of metabolism has already become somewhat irregular in the human being, but there are natural causes which still lead us to hold to a certain regularity in this respect. And you all know that a certain disorder results if, for some reason or other, we are prevented from establishing a rhythmic metabolism. We can deviate from it within limits, but we always endeavor to return again to a certain rhythm, 
and you know that this rhythm is one of the first essentials of physical health. It is a rhythm that embraces day and night. The rhythmic process of metabolism is completed in 24 hours. 24 hours after breakfast, you again have an appetite for breakfast. All that is connected with assimilation is connected also with the day's rhythmic course. I would now ask you to compare the solidity, the firmness of the exterior periphery of your body with the mobility of the forces of assimilation. One can say that no alterations take place in the former while assimilation repeats itself every 24 hours. A great deal takes place inside your organism, but your periphery remains unchanged. Now try to discover in the outer world something corresponding with this inner mobility in relation to firmness that you find in man. Look at the universe of stars. Note how the constellations move as little as do the features on the surface of the human exterior. You will find that the constellation of Aries is always at a fixed distance from the constellation of Taurus just as your two eyes remain at the same distance from one another. But apparently this whole stellar heaven moves. Apparently it revolves around the earth. Well, people are no longer ignorant about this nowadays. They know that the movement is merely apparent and ascribe its appearance to a revolution of the earth upon its own axis. Many have been the attempts to find proof for this revolution of the earth on its own axis. It was really only during the fifties of the last century that people established the right to speak of such a revolution, for it was only then that the pendulum experiments of Foucault demonstrated how this turning of the earth occurs. I will not go into this further today. However, this gave us valid proof of a process which repeats itself every twenty-four hours. In relation to the fixed constellations, it provides an analogy of the rhythmic course of our metabolism compared to the fixed nature of our exterior form. And you can find, if you examine thoroughly all the conditions and relationships, precise evidence for the Earth's movement in the processes of our metabolism. In our day, you see, there are various so-called theories of relativity which claim that we cannot really speak of absolute motion. If I look out of the window of a railway carriage and think that the objects outside are moving, in reality it is the train and myself that are moving. But strictly speaking, one cannot prove that the world outside is not also moving in an opposite direction. All this kind of talk is, as a matter of fact, of little value. For if one person walks toward another, who stands still while the first approaches him, it is, relatively speaking, immaterial whether he says, I approach him or he approaches me. Looked at in this way, there seems to be no difference. As you know, such considerations form the foundations of Einstein's theories of relativity. Yet there is a way in which one can strictly prove the motion. For the person who remains still will not experience fatigue, whereas the one who walks will do so. 
Thus inner processes can demonstrate the absolute reality of motion. Indeed, there are no other proofs proofs, but inner processes. Applying this to the earth, we can truly speak there too of absolute motion. For spiritual science enables us to realize that this motion is the equivalent of the inner motion of metabolism as compared with the fixed form of man. We should not lay so much stress upon the fact that the earth rotates round its axis and thereby brings about an apparent solar motion in space, but should instead relate this terrestrial motion to the whole starry universe. We should not speak of sun days, but rather of star days, which are not synonymous, for the stellar day is shorter than the solar. A correction is always necessary in formula dealing with the solar day. Hence we can truly speak of this movement of the earth on its axis as of something that can be derived from the nature of man himself. For, as already pointed out, the inner motion of metabolism within us relates to our outer form in the same way as the earth's rotation relates to the fixed stars, as embodied in the zodiac. When we look at the zodiac, it is the outer cosmic representative of our own outer form. When we consider the earth, we have before us the embodiment of assimilative forces within us and in each case there is a corresponding relation of movement. Now it will be a little more difficult to find the relationship between two and three, between inner movement and organic forces. We can, however, make the matter comprehensible in the following way. If you consider the inner movements within the human organism, you will readily conclude that they are something not in the least fixed, as his outer peripheral shape is. They are in motion. But something further is connected with this movement. The movements include that of the blood as well as the nerve fluid, lymph, etc. We need not give a detailed list of them here, but there are seven of these inner movements. Connected with these movements are the individual organs. These motions integrate the organs in the course of their flow. In the latter, we must recognize the results of these motions. On many occasions, I have drawn attention to the real truth about the human heart. The materialistic view of the world, as I have pointed out, believes the heart to be a kind of pump, forcing blood through the whole body but this is not the case. On the contrary, the pulsation of the heart is not the cause, but the effect of circulation. Organ functions are integrated into the living flow of inner motions. If we try to discover a cosmic equivalent for this, we will find it by observing the movements of the planets, especially if we consider their motions in relation to the movements of the moon. You will know, for I have often spoken of this, about the connection between lunar motion and the phenomena of the tides, and much more besides is connected with this lunar motion. Were we to study the phenomena of nature more deeply, 
we should find that not only does light appear as a result of the sunrise, but other and indeed more material effects in our earth environment are connected with planetary motion. Once this comes to be the basis of real, genuine study, we shall realize the harmony existing between many phenomena on the earth and the motions of the planets. We shall study the effects of planetary influence upon air, water, and earth in the same way as we study in the human body the influences upon their respective organs of the forces of inner movement in the circulation of the blood and in other circulations. In this way we shall discover a certain reciprocal action between organic activities and planetary movement. Just as we have already observed a correspondence between earth and the fixed stars, so now we shall in fact have before us a similar correspondence between the elements of earth, water, air, fire, heat, and the planets, among which we reckon, of course, the sun. Thus we arrive at a certain relation between occurrences within the human organism and those taking place outside in the macrocosm. For the present, however, we need concern ourselves only with the organic forces. How are they built up in the human body? They are built up in such a manner that, as we follow human life during the periods of this building-up process of the organs, we may recognize with a fair degree of accuracy that the process is related to the course of the year, in the same way as metabolism is related to the course of the day. Observe how this forming, structuring process takes place in the child, commencing at conception and proceeding until he first, quote, sees the light of day, close quote, as it is beautifully expressed. After this, and especially during the first months after birth, the building up process proceeds still further, over the course of a year, in fact. Then we have another period of about one year, up to the appearance of the first teeth. Thus, in the building process of the organs, we have a yearly course, but this course stands in a similar relation to the forces of inner movement in us as changing seasonal conditions, spring, summer, autumn, and winter, due to the planets. Here again we discover something in us that has correspondences in the macrocosm. We cannot study these matters in any other way than by comparing their specific details. All I can do today is to draw your attention to certain facts that bear upon this subject. For were we to examine the connections in detail, it would take us too long. But the more carefully you study certain relationships in the human being during the actual building process of the organs and see them in connection with the forces of inner movement, the more you will discover this harmony and interaction. Once the organs are fully developed, the human being extricates himself from these forces. By observing these things and their connection with inner forces of movement, you will find analogous relationships with the connection between the seasons and planetary movements. But we must avoid basing these observations upon the idea of the heart being a pump 
On the contrary, the heart must be viewed as a creation of the circulation of the blood. We must, so to speak, integrate the heart into a living blood circulation. The movement of the sun too must be thought of as similarly integrated into the movements of the planets. An unbiased examination of conditions inside us compels us to speak of a rotation of the earth on her axis causing an apparent motion of the starry heavens. This is equivalent to the motions of metabolism in their relationship to our human outer form. But we cannot speak of a movement of the earth around the sun during the year. We cannot do this if we understand what occurs within us, which lives in close connection with the macrocosm. For we must not conceive of that which moves toward the heart in any other manner than we would the other flows of movement within us. We must therefore recognize that we are concerned not with an elliptical movement of the earth in the course of the year, but rather with a movement which corresponds to the solar motion. That is, earth and sun move together in the course of the year. The one does not circle around the other. The latter opinion is the result of judging things by outer appearances. What we actually have here is the motion of both these bodies in space with a certain connection between the two. This is something in Copernican theory that will have to be substantially corrected. But there is yet another way to in which we must conceive man's relationship with macrocosmic nature. What is the real nature of the process which we observe in the daily movement of metabolism? Only part of this process occurs while we are conscious, another part being accomplished while consciousness is excluded, while the ego and astral body are separated from the physical and etheric. Now, we must especially note the following. We do not experience in the same way what takes place between waking and going to sleep and what takes place between going to sleep and waking. Just consider the relation between the two moments of time, going to sleep and waking. If you do this with an unprejudiced mind, you will arrive at an unequivocal view of the matter. When you go to sleep, you are, as it were, at the zero point of your being. The condition of sleep is not really one of rest. It is the opposite of the waking state. At the moment of waking, you are really in the same relation to yourself and your environment as at the moment of going to sleep. The one is the equivalent of the other, the only difference being that of direction. Awaking means passing from sleep to the waking state. Falling asleep is the reverse. Apart from direction, they are absolutely alike. Therefore, if we could indicate the movements of metabolism by a line, then it cannot be a straight line or a circle, for they would not contain the points of awaking and of falling asleep. We must find a line which actually depicts the movements of metabolism so as to contain these points. And the only one, search as long as you like, is the lemnus gate. Here you have the point of awaking in one direction 
and the point of falling asleep in the other direction. The directions alone are opposite, the two points being equal conditions. We can now distinguish in a real way the cycle of day and the cycle of night. Where does all this lead us? If we have grasped the fact that the motion of our daily metabolism corresponds to the motion of the earth, we can no longer attribute a merely circular motion to it, and there's a diagram. On the contrary, we must see that the earth actually proceeds along its path in a way that produces a lemniscate line. The motion is not a simple revolution, but a more complicated movement. Each point of the terrestrial surface describes a lemniscate, which is also the line described by the metabolic process. We cannot, therefore, imagine the earth's movement to consist merely of a rotation on its axis, for in reality it is a complicated motion in which every point upon which you stand describes a lemniscate. Actually, in order to form the foundation for the movement of your metabolic processes. It is absolutely necessary to seek in the movements of the outer universe the equivalent of movements taking place within us. For only by studying the changes within our bodies can we arrive at an understanding of the planetary motions exterior to us. When a person uses his limbs to move and becomes tired, we cannot go on arguing the point as to whether he is in relative or actual motion. It is out of the question to say, perhaps the movement is only relative, perhaps the other man whom he is approaching is after all really approaching him. Theories of relativity no longer hold water when our inner motion proves that we move. And in fact, the only way to prove the movements in the interior of the earth is by means of the inner changes that go on within us. The movements of metabolism, for example, are the true reflection of the movements which earth executes in space. And again, what we have termed the organ-building forces, active in the course of the year, are the equivalent of the annual motion of earth and sun together. We shall have occasion to speak more specifically of these things later. Various other facts show that we have no right to speak of such an orbit around the sun. To give one instance, this is clear from the fact that it was found necessary, I have spoken of this before, simply to suppress one statement by Copernicus. Were the earth revolving round the sun, we should of course expect her axis, which, owing to its inertia, remains parallel, to point in the direction of different fixed stars during this revolution. But it does not. If the earth revolved round the sun, the axis could not continually point in the direction of the pole star, for the point indicated would itself have to revolve round the pole star. It does not, however, do this. The axis continually points to the pole star. That line, which, if the theory were true, would visibly correspond to the progressive motion of the earth in its relation to the sun, is not to be found. It is in a spiral, screw-like path that the earth follows the sun, boring its way, as it were, into cosmic space. 
I have already indicated, however, that there is another movement which manifests in the phenomena of the precession of the equinoxes. The movement of the point of sunrise at the spring equinox through the zodiac, once in 25,920 years. This is also the equivalent of a certain motion in human beings. What can we find within us that corresponds to it? You may be able to come to a conclusion on this point from what I have said above. We have to find a motion equivalent to the relation of the sun to the fixed stars. For the point of sunrise progresses through the complete zodiac, or fixed stars, once in 25,920 years. The equivalent in us is to be found in a relation between the forces of inner movement and the forces of form. But one must, but one which must be of long duration. The forces of inner movement in us must change in some way so as to alter their position in relation to our external periphery. You will remember what I said about something that has been observable since the period of ancient Greece. I said that the Greeks used the same word for yellow and green, that they really did not see blue in the same way as we do, but actually, as reported by Roman writers, recognized and used four colors only in their art, namely yellow, red, black, and white. They saw these four living colors. To them the sky was not blue, as we see it. It appeared to them as a kind of darkness. Now this is an assertion that can be made in all certainty, and spiritual science confirms it. This change in the human being has taken place since the time of ancient Greece. When you ponder the fact that the constitution of the human eye, E-Y-E, has undergone such a degree of modification since the period of ancient Greece, you can then also conceive of other alterations in the human organism, taking place at our external periphery and occupying still longer periods of time for their accomplishment. Such alterations at our periphery, must of necessity bear a relation to the forces of inner movement, for, of course, they cannot be produced by the digestion or the organs. These external changes correspond, as a matter of fact, to the course of the vernal equinox in the zodiac, to a period, that is, of 25,920 years. During this period, the human race undergoes complete change. We must not make the mistake of thinking that humanity was the same 25,920 years ago as it is now. Consideration of the circumstances connected with physical existence makes it absurd to use the figures given us by modern geology for the purpose of following human evolution, for we can comprise this only in the period of 25,920 years, and part of that is still in the future. When the vernal equinox has returned to the same place once more, the alterations that will have taken place in the whole human race are such that the human form will be quite dissimilar to what it is now. I have already told you something derived from other sources of cognition about the future of the human race and about its age. 
And here we see how the consideration of physical conditions compels a recognition of the same knowledge. From all this you can see that what we call the movements of the heavenly bodies are not quite as simple as present-day astronomy would have us believe, but that we enter here into extremely complicated conditions, conditions that can be studied from a perspective which relates man to the macrocosm. I have already been able to point out to you certain details of the motions of the heavenly bodies, and we shall, in course of time, learn more and more about them from other sources. You will already be able to see one thing, that man is not wholly dependent upon the macrocosm. With what lies deep down in the subconscious, with the processes of metabolism and assimilation, he is still in a certain way, but only in a certain way, bound to the earth's daily rotation on its axis. Nevertheless, he can lift himself out of this connection. How is this? It is possible because man, as he now is, built up in accordance with the forces of the periphery and of inner movement, with the forces, too, of the organs and of the metabolic system, is complete and finished in his dependence on external forces, and is thus able, with his complete and finished organization, to sever himself from this connection. In the same sense that we have, in waking and sleeping, a copy of day and night, having thus in ourselves the inner rhythm of day and night, but not needing to make this inner rhythm correspond with the outer rhythm of day and night, that is, we need not sleep at night nor wake during the day, so we can also sever our connection with the macrocosm in other parts of our existence. Upon this is founded the possibility of human free will. It is not man's present development that is dependent upon the macrocosm, but his past development. Man's present experiences are fundamentally a picture or copy of his past adaptation to the macrocosm. And in this sense we live in the pictures of our past. Within these we are enabled to evolve our freedom, and from them we receive our moral laws, which are independent of natural necessity. It is when we understand clearly how man and macrocosm are related to each other that we recognize the possibility of our free will. Finally, we must think over the following. It is clear that our metabolic forces still retain a certain connection with the rhythm of our daily life. The forces of form have solidified. Now, consider the animal instead of man. Here we shall find a much more complete dependence upon the macrocosm. Man has grown out of or beyond this dependence. Ancient wisdom therefore spoke of the zodiac or animal circle, not of the man circle as corresponding to formative forces. These forces manifest themselves in the animal kingdom in a great variety of forms, while in man they manifest essentially in one form, encompassing the whole human race. But they are the forces of the animal kingdom, and as we evolve beyond them and become man, we must go out beyond the zodiac. 
Beyond the zodiac lies that upon which we, as human beings, are dependent in a higher sense than we are upon all that exists within the zodiac, that is, within the circle of the fixed stars. Beyond the zodiac is that which corresponds to our ego. With the astral body, which the animal also possesses, we are fettered to a dependence upon the macrocosm, and the building up of the astral vehicle takes place in accordance with the will of the stars. But with our eye or ego we transcend the zodiac. Here we have the principle upon which we have gained our freedom. Within the zodiac we cannot sin any more than can the animals. We begin to sin as soon as we carry our actions beyond the zodiac. This happens when we do things that make us free from our connection with universal formative forces, when we enter into relationship with regions exterior to the zodiac or region of fixed stars. And this is the essential content of the human ego. You see, we may measure the universe in so far as it appears to us a visible and temporal thing. We may measure its full extent through space to the outermost fixed stars. And all that takes place by way of movement in time in this starry heaven. And we may consider all this in its relation to man. But in man, something is being fulfilled that occurs outside this space and outside this time, outside all that takes place in the astral. There beyond is no, quote, natural necessity, close quote, but only what is intimately connected with our moral nature and moral actions. Within the zodiac we are unable to evolve our moral nature, but insofar as we evolve it, we record it into the macrocosm beyond the zodiac. All that we do remains and works in the world, the processes taking place within us, from the forces forming us to the forces of metabolism, are the result of the past. But the past does not prejudge the whole of the future. It has no power over the, that future which proceeds from man himself in his moral actions. I can only lead you forward in this study step by step. Keep well in mind what I have said today and in my next lecture we will examine the matter from yet another point of view. The end of Lecture 6